Right, Mavis, welcome to episode three of These Little Victories with myself, Jay Fender. Today's guest is Johnny Borrell, the creative force and vocalist from well-known indie band Razorlight. He's also in a new project called Jealous Nostril. Now, Jealous Nostril will be heading out on tour with my band, Aflex Palace, this October. Tickets are on sale now, so if you're keen for a night of exceptional music, grab yourself a ticket and we'll see you down the front. We'd love to see you there. Now, in this podcast, we discussed many things, from how he co-wrote their biggest tune, America, um, to the most memorable celebrity he's met along his journey with Razorlight, And we also go all the way back to the early days of Razorlight, um, discussing where they recorded their demos in East London. It's a really interesting listen, so I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, Now, if you enjoy the content we're putting out with these little victories, please uh, drop us a subscribe on YouTube or whatever streaming platform you're listening on. And if you want to go a little bit further with the support, head over to Spirit of Spike Island, where you can buy merch from T-shirts, you can also buy vinyl for the artists on my record label's roster. Um, and yeah, we'll keep the train chugging. But for now, let's get into the podcast and we'll see you on the other side. Yeah, how's your day been? Good? Yeah, pretty good. This is amazing. It's all right, isn't it? Just pop in. Yeah. And everything's already set up. And you just take your your, uh, your memory card after you've been in. Yeah, exactly. who was here before us? That's what I'm wondering. It's, yeah. like, it's like being in a hotel. You're like, <laughs> who, was, who was the last person in this bed? That's the one thing you're not allowed to think. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody's fingerprints on every studio you've been in. I think that's what gives it. Like the f- I remember that was the first first thing with Razor, like the first time we ever, we did like my dem or something like that was like, and I remember because I it was in, it was in Nice or something like that. And I, and the, the time before that I'd been there was I was getting a ferry down to Ajaxio because my girlfriend was her family from from Corsica. All right, but I thought I could just sleep on the beach because like it was France, so it must be hot. <laughs> I hadn't travelled much at that point, and uh, it was uh, it was like New Year's Eve. It was like four degrees, you know. So I remember like sitting there on the beach in Nice with my guitar, like just trying to like. And then we end up in this posh hotel. Sorry, the point. We end up in this posh hotel overlooking the the the, the plage des Anglais, and uh, and I went in. And I was so excited, and then it's like that. I was like, wow, you know, I got in, ordered everything I could off the room service menu because I didn't realise it was me that was paying for it. <laughs> and uh, and I'm lying there, and I'm going, shit. Who was the person before me that was in this bed? It was Danny, didn't he? Yeah, like, exactly. And it was that moment of like, yeah, yeah. Like, I can't enjoy anything. Was it was it, was Mydem a bit like um, the Great Escape for young bands, or is it like what is that? I've heard of it. Is it an industry thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I've never done Great Escapes. So I don't know. So Great Escapes a bit like South by where yeah. it's kind of like the ind- music yeah. industry descends on uh, a city. To Wasn't there one? There was one in Manchester as well. Yeah, in the city. In the South- city, you know, it was brilliant for us in the early days because we were booked to do it. But we didn't even know. Neither me or Roger knew. Some, yeah, it was Tony Wilson that sent that yeah. set that up, right? And then, like, they did all the articles at the end of the news stories at the end of In the City about the new bands to watch, and every single one of them mentioned Razorlight because they're like, and Razorlight who just didn't turn up. What? Like, as if it was some super cool move of ours, and we're like, well, we didn't even know about it. Insane. Yeah, it was amazing. With the only times I've done festivals like that with with, with originals stuff. 
it always feels unless you're really really popping hot it can be a little bit of a like a cattle market like despair yeah utter despair yeah first like, time we first time we went to south by oh just despair what year did you go to south 2003 wow yeah it's changed i went i went in 2015 as an artist yeah and i and it was very very commercial like everything oh, was yeah, like yeah. mcdonald's and stuff how was it well, I mean, I did it then? again in like 2011 or something like that, so it wasn't, you know, but, uh, and I, I did it like th three, four times, I think, but yeah, that first one was like, it was amazing, yeah. Yeah. Well, because the only band that anyone was interested in at that point in time was Franz Ferdinand. Right. So it was just everywhere you went, like you'd, you'd sort of like just see Franz Ferdinand appearing in a helicopter and I love them and I love Alex and I think he's, I think he's great. <laughs> I've got so much respect for them as a band. Yeah. And, you know, and I loved them at the time as well, but it was just this like soul-destroying nail like going right through your wrist every time you got anywhere because you're like, here's my, oh, who's yeah. that turning up in the helicopter? Yeah. Oh, it's Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. And everyone, everyone losing, their, losing their shit. When so. that, you know, when that came out, I was working up Tower Cranes in London right, yeah. and it was just like, I was working on um, Whittington Hospital, helping yeah, to build yeah, the new yeah. wing. Yeah. And I remember every morning I'd be up the crane at half seven with the radio one on and that was just like there was that and snow patrol and keen and all these yeah, other artists yeah. that were like like kind of like indie pop like not not franz ferdinand but like the other stuff was indie pop light kind of thing and crossing over yeah and it was just i just remember just there was a geezer in the um cra there was two cranes on site when you've got two cranes or tower cranes operating yeah. next to each other yeah you've got to have a, have a radio yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. if you're lifting something you turn around you could yeah, swing yeah, you into smash the other one yeah and I remember this, this there were these two old, old but there were three three tower crane operators, myself and two other blokes doing the two on a kind of like a shift pattern. And uh, this this Welsh old Welsh guy went, Jay, call back on the radio, and I was like, Ah, oh, yeah, right. What's up? Are you lifting rebar or what, what's what's happening? He was like, There's a pair of binoculars in the footwell of your cabin. Could you pick them up for me? <laughs> and I was like, Well, yeah, yeah. Why? What they're here? Yeah. What's up? It yeah. was like. Could you just pick them up and look through them? And you see that bunch of flats just over there. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, third window down, four across. See what? Tell me what you see. And it was this woman getting undressed, <laughs> and the geezer didn't have binoculars, and he just had a, like a eagle eye. Oh like, my god! He was just like, bam! This woman getting changed in that window. So if you if you've ever got a tower crane within any kind of distance of your, just be careful what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so around that time, um, I mean, we've talked about it previously, but I had I, a few moments like that. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but on the other way around, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, we talked about like obviously you did it South by in two thousand three, um, but we I, th I thought it was really interesting where you recorded your demos. You recorded them at Towrag, was it? Yeah. In right. in Hackney. Yeah. Did you record with Liam Watson? Yeah. Then, and uh, like how. how was it um, Roger, that your manager, that put you in Razor Light in with him, or was it yourself who kind of facilitated, you know, no, propagated I, I, that intro? I knew Liam a bit from just just from being around, like um, I don't know if it was like mod clubs and stuff like that or whatever, but just like, and 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 he was a, and I used to go and watch Billy Childish quite a lot, and he was always at that, he was at those gigs. Okay. So I just sort of run into him, and because he was. He was always there in his lab coat kind of vibe. Or he was like very... No, I think he just used to wear like a 60s cut suit when he went out. So, right. Uh, you know, I was I was always drawn to sort of the big characters, you know, or so visually anyway, you know. Absolutely. And so I'd always talk to him. And uh, and then it just seemed like the right place to go because we were... 
our rehearsal studio, I mean, it was this lock up, was it was on Lee Bridge Road. Right. So it was just around the corner. So we were like, yeah, well, where are we going to record? Why don't we go, oh, why don't we go and record with Liam? You know? Right. So it was kind of. Had, had he already made, because obviously he did, well, not maybe not too obviously, but he recorded uh, Elephant for yeah. with White Stripes. Had he already done that? Was he already popping? Or was there just no. like an, an underground no, awareness well, yeah, was, of what he offered new new bands we, doing we, that kind I of? I think we recorded there either like two weeks before or two weeks after they rec- they did those elephant sessions or something. I believe so. So it hadn't come out at that point. Okay. So we just we just went in. And it was John Fortis as well. He was um he came in and co I think he co produced it with with Liam because he was mates with Liam as well. Okay. Yeah. So right. it all just sort of came together. He was up Walthamstow. So it was just it was just kind of like northeast London vibes, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because there was yeah. a real buzz around Hackney and uh, this, the, the, but there was an edge to that part of London at the time. I remember recording at the premises yeah. with Gordon Raphael a little bit, probably around that time, and going to Dalston and. I felt it was a bit lawless, actually. Like, I lived in South East London. I lived in New Cross, mm-hmm. and I'd seen people get stabbed and shot over there, like, coming home on a night out, which... But I felt safer there than I did when I was in Dalston. Um, and, but yeah, I, I, I found that the... Um, that scene at that time, it seemed to just propagate a lot of many interesting, edgy bands and yeah. you recorded three tunes there right oh, yeah. is that right that's right yeah yeah and then i believe from from what i've heard that you were uh, played on xfm yeah I, well I, yeah we sent it into xfm and to, we sent it to john kennedy and then for whatever reason he was on the breakfast show depping in for somebody the next like a week later right and he said uh, oh there's this new band uh i and he's what he, he said i heard that I heard that Julian Casablanca is having a hard time writing songs for the next Strokes album. He should give Johnny Barella a call and then played Rock and Roll Lies or something like that. And we were like, oh, okay, yeah, great. How did that fit? Do you remember how it made you feel? Did you did you anticipate such a um, positive response for like from those studio recordings? Like, Did you expect it or were you? No, not at all. I, but the only thing I can say is I remember my brother had this van that was like painted like like the A team. Right. Right. And he was sort of living in that van and driving around. And I remember playing him those recordings. Yeah. And we we smoked a big joint and we were driving and we listened to those recordings. And like I was like, yeah. He was like, this is actually good. Yeah. You know, like it was the first time he ever complimented my music. He was like, this is nice. actually good. And I was like, well, shit, if my brother thinks it's good, it might even be good. So um so I just felt that those recordings were, were good, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, so I was sort of, I wasn't, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. You got played, it just seemed like it made sense. You send it to someone, if they like it, they play it on the radio. I felt lucky. I just felt like, well, okay, it's lucky that he liked it. And was it was there a, a, an immediate connection with labels? Because you signed, ended up signing to Mercury. And from what I've read, there was a bid in war and mm-hmm. um, like, I've been part of one of them with majors before. And if you've never had a record deal before, it's very, I found it incredibly exciting um, because it felt like you were making waves. Yeah. How did it, how did you feel about it? And were you, yeah. How did you feel about it all when it was started popping with labels, getting in contact? And- it just felt like 
it just felt like you were in in the fantasy world. You'd gone through the looking glass. You yeah, know what I mean? You're like suddenly, because also you've got to think like it's before phones and socials and that kind of stuff. So you couldn't be like check out my band, you know, or like here it is, I'll play it to you. Yeah, you'd go out and you'd have a CD in your back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd yeah. only have like three CDs anyway because it costs you a tenner to print them. Absolutely. So you maybe if you you think about who am I going to give this to? Who am I going to? Are you worth it? No, I'm not. No, no. You yeah. know what I mean? So it was like, and then suddenly you're in the, you know, so you're you're screaming away about your band and no one give, no one gives a shit. Absolutely. And I mean, I'd come I'd come out of maybe four years of doing that was was me and the Libertines in that sort of vacuum yeah. of, of screaming and going, you know listen to this, listen to this, or let's try and play, let's just try and break out somehow. And um, though I will say one thing we never tried to do was figure out how to break into the world, like the world of music as it was. Okay. That was just never crossed our mind. It was like, let's make the music we want to make and see what happens. Right. Do you know what I mean? And 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 that was probably significant as it panned out. But Did the... Did the record label have any kind of creative input? Was the A and R person feeding back any any kind of pointers, or do you, were you left to man the ship and just deliver an album, that first album? It well, it was complicated. I mean, um, the 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 first thing was it was amazing having labels interested and 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 that kind of stuff, and and also I'd had this experience because a year before, like my best friends. I'd signed a deal with Rough Trade because so the Libertines had got signed and they'd been put on the front of the enemy, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't an instant pop for them by any means, you know what I mean? So they they got signed and it was it, it was still very much an indie thing and it was it was building and whatever. But uh, they were far from mainstream at that point. But it was amazing and inspiring to see. It's like, wow, we were like we were all like borrowing 50p off each other yesterday yeah you know and now suddenly you've got 20 grand in your account yeah 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 wow you mean right now you could get a plane to anywhere in the world yeah. or you could get a taxi to anywhere in this city and you don't need to worry about it you know it was like this so that was that was amazing and it was you know it was inspiring for me you know um and i felt like because of because you know I'd had a sort of connection to that record and 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 that whole process that um I felt like it was inevitable that like the labels were gonna be like, "Well, who is this guy? what's he doing you know yeah uh, so it was nice so I, can't, I i like it was it was not it didn't it felt like a sure thing, you know it was like but it was when, did, when people did the stopped. label come into the studio with you. At yeah. any point and a few uh, labels uh, came into the studio. Oh right, okay. We so, had our, so pre before you signed, yeah. A few labels came in to listen to to what you were up to. Yeah, and I can't remember who they were to be honest. Okay. I remember there were some American labels, like some 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 dudes that were like big shot dudes and Were you yeah. already recording your debut album before you'd signed no. your deal? So no. you signed with Mercury. Yeah. And then we done we'd done those recordings at Torag. Yeah. Um, and with and uh I don't even think we'd put them out. Right. But it was starting to get played on the radio, but we hadn't put it out. Right. So the label came in and they were like, okay, well, you know, let's put out Rock and Roll Eyes and rip it up. I think it's like a double A side or something like that. Right. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was interesting. 
it was, a, you know, I remember we were in Glasgow, we were about to play uh, King Tut's or Nice and Sleazy's or something like oh, that. Right, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and like, you know, it was that Spinal Tap moment, you know, the, 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 the records and the CDs turn up and it's like, yeah, wow. And someone goes, they've written our name upside down and they've spelt the title of the song wrong. And we're like, oh, cool, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it was kind of like, welcome to the world of the music industry. And um, no one cares about your music more than you, you know, like yeah, the devil's course, in, yeah, do, you, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like when you're putting stuff out. You, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I kind of naively assumed that because they were all grown-ups, they'd do a really good job. Yeah, absolutely. You, know? you think that, right? Yeah. We've got a product manager assigned. They're going to do right by us. They know what they're doing, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. Anyway, um, what happened? Well, uh, yeah, then... then uh, you went to... You, did, you, did you decide on the producer yourself? Did you speak to a few different geezers or...? Well, the MD of one of the... the, the one of the MDs, they had three MDs. One of the MDs at, at Mercury was... Uh, Steve Lillywhite, who produced The Pogues, who produced U2, right. blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I had a lot of respect for Steve. Um, XTC, Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, right. And I was like, well, Steve, let's just go in with you. And he was like, yeah, sure. Okay. Shit, that's class. Right, so I went in with Steve and I'd never worked with a producer before and, I, and I'd written this song, Golden Touch. Yeah. And that we hadn't written that when they signed us. So that was one I wrote after they signed us. Okay. And I was like, okay. And I thought, and I said to Steve, I think this is like a, it's like a near classic, you know, but it needs a middle eight. Right. And I kind of assumed that a producer would just write you a middle eight. Right. He'd go, well, all right, well, let's get around the piano. I sort of like thinking it's going to be Quincy Jones. We're going to sit down, <laughs> we sit down at the piano. And yeah. Steve says to me, oh, I'm not really a songwriter. You know, I'm, I'm a producer. And I was like, oh, okay. So, all right. Okay. And we recorded it all with Steve. And uh, then we were on tour and we listened to it and uh, it was shit. So we did the we did about ten tracks and we were on tour. We we're all sitting in the van. We we're probably watching like Das Boot or something like that. And like you know, and we were like, "Come on, let's put on these recordings." And we sat there and we listened and we like it's that moment where we're all sort of like, "Yeah, I don't know," because it starts off like, "Oh, this you want to hear like Steve's mixes, you know, Steve's right? you know, yeah. because we're we're a signed band with like a top producer now. This is going to be amazing." Yeah, and we're like, "Yeah, yeah," and then we like put it on and like someone's like, "Hmm." I think the snare sounds a little bit not quite right. Right. And someone else is like, yeah, you know, actually my bass, like that really sound like it does on stage. Right. It's like, yeah, what's that? What's that effect on the vocal? You know, we're like bit by bit, we're all looking at each other and going, this is terrible, isn't it? You know? <laughs> and um, so we were in this really interesting position because I went into Richard O'Donovan, R&R guy. And I said to him, uh, Rich, uh, Steve's, he's not right. Right. And with all due respect to Steve, which I have a lot for Steve. Of course. When I've listened back to it recently, I can see exactly what he was doing. He was sort of trying to make it sound like XTC. Right. Which is genius, right? But wasn't, it wasn't quite where we were at right. at that point in time. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Richard so actually said, What, you want me to fire the uh you want me to fire the MD off your record? And I was like, Yeah. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Yeah, okay, well, uh well, I'll let you know how it goes. Shit. And so we did. And uh Steve also to his credit, he took that this is like one of the reasons I love England and I'm so glad that I wasn't born an American, because if you tried that 
at Motown, at Tamler, you know, Motown Universal or something like that, yeah. Island Def Jam in the States, they would just kill you. Of course. Your record would never, ever come out. No, it and Steve, to his credit, he was, you know, he'd gone through some personal stuff and that wasn't a great point in his life. And he was like, yeah, actually, I don't think I was getting that one right. Wow. The f however, the first half of Golden Touch is the version we did with Steve Lillywhite. So uh, something good came out of it. And then we were looking around and, and we ended up going in with uh, John Cornfield, who did all the Supergrass stuff. And was that saw sawmills? Started off in London because my, my condition was, uh, see, I was like already like laying conditions at this point in time. <laughs> you know? uh, I think I had one single that made like 29 in the charts, you know, but I was like, look, my condition for recording is it happens in London. So we started in Battersea in uh, Sphere, Sun, Sphere, somewhere, anyway. And, um, and it was great. And, uh, and then John had some personal stuff. His father wasn't well. And he was like, I've got to be back in Cornwall because I've got to be near my family. Right. And I was like, oh, God damn. Because the thought of going to like an island in Cornwall, I mean, like I, at that point in my life, I'd always been in cities. So it was like a cow scared me. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to walk. You know, like, I didn't like trees. You know what I mean? It was like, I don't like smelling things. You know, I, mean? I just like, I, I knew where I was if I could just get a bus somewhere. Sure. And um, yeah, it was terrible. But it was like, well, do this or don't do it. And we and we just found the vibe. Right. And that was, and I made a... Uh, so did you not, did you not like being at Sawmill? Because I've never been to that studio before. Well, I actually, well, I made a, um, cal what, I, what I would call is I, I took a calculated risk. Right. Right. To to get through those two weeks, I decided to get back on heroin at that point. Oh, God. Right? right. But like in a really cold, calculated way. Right. I was like, I'd been clean for like three years. Okay. And I was like, well, I can't, I'm, I can't deal with being there. I have to be there. The only way I'm going to get through this is I need some kind of, my girlfriend won't, I was like, well, you, Sophie, you'll come with me. Right. And uh, she was like, I've got a job. I was like, oh, okay. And uh, so I was like, man, this isn't going to work. I don't know what I'm going to do. So sort of like as a substitute girlfriend <laughs> or like um, I, I decided, I made a, yeah, like a calculated decision, a conscious decision. I was like, I'm just going to start using again. Right. And I said to Roger, I said, if I'm still using in three weeks, I want you to drop me as an artist, as a client. And, and you know, I don't want you to ever answer a phone call from me again. Do you promise me you can do that? Wow. Yeah. And he said to me, yeah, I can do that. And um, Roger's my manager, just so anyone doesn't know. And, um, and Roger and I, we just, we've always had trust. You know, I've never signed a deal with Roger. We've never put anything down on a piece of paper. Wow, that's right? good. So either one of us could fuck each other over like that. And we've never needed to, because I just figure if you don't trust somebody, a piece what? of paper is not going to help. No, absolutely. Right. And um, so, yeah, so, so I sort of like, so yeah, I went and scored. I got some gear and I went down there. And I had, luckily I had scabies at the time, right? Which, you know, those little bugs that live under your skin. And that, that was like terribly, um, terribly fashionable at the time <laughs> in, in, in North London to, have, to be a uh, struggling artist and have scabies. But it meant that I could be scratching myself all, the, which is one of the giveaways when you're, when you're on smack, you're always itching. Right. So luckily I could just like say it was the scabies. Shit. So I remember it's, it's all covered in like all these like sores and stuff. I was scratching away. And yeah, it was good. The record was great. Yeah. I, I got into it being down there. Yeah. But I had to really, it was like, I like this interview because no one ever asked me these questions. I had to work it out. Like if, if I did all the vocals in one go, Yeah. it just had to be the right moment. But it was only because I'd spent a whole week trying to get 
the right combination of coffee, weed, booze and heroin so that the vocals sounded... Well, I needed the booze to get just relaxed enough. but The I, confidence. Just, yeah, just to let go a bit. But then if you get too much booze, your voice gets really flat and like, and you start to lose timing. Absolutely. So I needed, I was just doing like instant coffee, like loads of them just to keep it like up there. But then I'd always be, but then I needed the gear, the heroin, just so I wouldn't start clucking, you know, so I needed to be okay. And then the problem is the heroin, it puts you back a little bit. So I'd just smoke a bit of hash or something like that. And, I, and it kind of just like, it feels like it, as it goes in, it goes up your bloodstream the other way to the gear and it just, everything feels right. So it was a very precarious Jesus. combo that I needed to get. And um, Do you find, the well, how, how did your band feel? Were they in the same kind of situation as yourself or um, did they just let you get on with it? Were they even aware of what you were kind of like into? The, you know, uh, Well, Christian, our drummer, would have been because we we sort of got together through heroin essentially like, okay. you know, like uh, so is that one of the reasons he left no 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 but he, he because well it was tragic right our, our great mutual friend lee um died in a car crash right age 19 right and christian kind of like after that happened he kind of flipped around and he, he went completely straight edge right and this was like in a time when like <clears throat> no one had heard of organic you know what i mean but he was like he was only eating he was like pure organic food like raw diet all this kind of stuff which was like wild fringe stuff at the time yeah absolutely and uh um you know and, and christian was like he was going through some weird things you know so he, he actually wasn't at the studio much he'd turn up he'd do a couple of takes of drums and he'd go oh no i can feel a little bit of tension here so i'm gonna go off and get a massage now right you know and it was like okay so in the end, I kind of just said to Chris, I said, look, come down. I want to get these drum takes out of you and then go somewhere else. Right. Because I just need to finish the record. Right, right, you right. You're doing my head in. Yeah. And, and we were always straight with each other. So I was, that was good. Um, I can't remember uh, how Bjorn and Carl felt about it particularly. Yeah, yeah. It's a long while back. Yeah. But... Um, and and so so you, you got the album finished. But because, you... I, because I was basically producing it. I mean, you know, John is a great engineer. Yeah. But I, so I was kind of running this session and like, you know, so it was, it was kind of like, I think the lads were just like, okay, well, we'll just leave it. Did did John mix it as well with yeah. yourself or did you have someone else mix the record? I think John mixed it, yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, we used to, yeah, we, we'd, we'd, I'd listen to it in the control room and then we'd turn it up as loud as it would go yep. on the Gen Alex or whatever. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then... I'd go over to the, I'd go over the bridge. Well, it's not a bridge. It's, 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 it's tidal. So half the time it's an island. Okay. Half the time it isn't. At Sawmill in Cornwall. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd go like as far away from the studio as I could be and then listen to the mix from there. Ah. And I was like, and that was, so I could feel like I, I could how get old, How old were you there? 23. That's quite precocious to be like, you know, yeah. it's quite an, an advanced, uh, uh, way to process music because when i was 23 i was uh, i was really into music but i i had no kind of ambition or awareness of how to produce or what i should no, be looking neither, for I no just, but you trusted no, your instinct right i didn't trust my instinct i was just so neurotic like and so like i, I was like um 
Well, it was like Descartes, the philosopher. It was like the Cartesian waves of doubt. Right. Every track, I'd have to like put it in front of me and go, I'm going to forget everything I know and I'm going to try and hate this. Right. Right. And I'm going to try and come at it from every angle. No, it's too this, it's too that, it's too polite, it's too clean, it's too whatever. Any, that, any criticism I can bring to it, I'm going to bring to it and I'm going to fix it. Were you using any recordings as a point of reference? Like, so for example... No. No, no, you weren't listening never. to any jam tracks, class tracks. No, no, you were saying that. Like... I knew, the only thing I knew was that John had done Supergrass. Okay. And I loved the sound of the Supergrass records. Yeah. So I just said, well, it's never going to sound worse than a Supergrass record. So that's that part taken care of. Of course. Right. And so that was that was all I needed to know. Because I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't have told you the difference between a kick drum and a rack tom at, at that point in time. Yeah. But I was, so I was just like, it's just. Yeah, it was instinct because it's like, how do I feel when it's coming out? That's it. You know? And I guess musicians, you, especially as a songwriter, you, you run on instinct. You've got to trust yeah. your taste. But having said that, every track they had to prize out of my grip. Right. I mean, you know, I like Golden Touch, I remember sitting there. I was in New York listening to it. We were out doing a gig or something like that. And I was just like, is it that? Is it right? Is it right? Is it not right? Is it not right? And that's the version that came out. You know what I mean? I was sitting there. I must have listened to it over and over, maybe over four or five hours, just listening to it over and over again, going, no, this needs to change. This needs to change. You know, and I remember being in Sawmills and the label turning up, but they actually had to come down to get the files. You know, it's old school, you know? And I'm just like, you can't have it yet. And he's like, seriously, I've promised them like a radio premiere tomorrow. I've got to go. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't go till it's Is done. Is this for Golden Torch, the radio? I think so, yeah. Okay. And, I, and I was just like, I'm just going to keep going. And and um, making your first record is really fun. That's all I remember. Like, I mean, it was it was a head fuck and everything. And but the, there's a naivety to it, right? That allows yeah. you no, to well, enjoy that but process. Also, every every trick in every record you've ever heard that's like that's done it for you in your whole life, you can you can like put that into your record. Yeah. And you do, and you put all of them in. Absolutely. You know, and you're like, oh man, wouldn't it be amazing if it just dropped to a drum solo there? Like, you know, and it's like... But listening to that record now, it feels very concise. It feels very driven and punchy and exciting. Yeah. The whole record, like the second record feels more mature. Yeah. And that was the real kind of crossover moment that was like, I, 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 yeah. I mentioned this on one of the videos and one of the social things where... The first time I saw America, the video for America, um, I was I was friends with these two twins who were doctors who were like really eccentric, driving around in Lamborghinis. And I used to go around and, and smoke weed and watch like really interesting films that they'd introduced to me and stuff. And we'd just sometimes watch music videos. Yeah, yeah. And I remember America came on. Right, yeah. And I was just sat there and I was really stoned. And I... I remember they were into quite a lot of pop stuff. And as soon as it finished, I was just like, that's going to be fucking massive. <laughs> like as soon as it finished and my yeah. mate was like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And I was just like, I'm telling you now, that's, yeah, yeah. that's going to fucking explode for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going back to the first Well, record, funnily enough, because the video that I wanted to do. For America. Yeah. What was it? It was going to be a split screen of just, of just a burning, uh, a burning Stars and Stripes. And a and a and a, fl a fluttering in the breeze starts and starts and strikes with like a soldier just like saluting it, you know. And I was just like, why isn't that the video? Why isn't that the video? <laughs> we went in with John Hillman, who who did uh, that did um, 
Nick Cave's movie and all that. And, right. and we shot it at the same time as we shot the Before I Fall to Pieces video with Guy Pierce in it, which was like a dream for me. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, well, here I am. I'm with a heavyweight actor, heavyweight director. This is brilliant. And, it, and then we actually shot the America video pretty much on the same day or the day after, but same setup. You know? Wow. And so the America video was kind of an afterthought. Right. You know, I said, but I hated it because the problem is after we'd done the first, when we did the first record, they just, apart from me and Richard, the A&R sort of scrapping over things a bit, but I really respected his ears as, as a music fan. So it was, it was never like, he was never pushing it to be more commercial. Right. It was kind of, if anything, he was like the other direction, to be honest. Okay. And, um, but apart from that, the label just let me do whatever I wanted to do because they'd signed the Rapture for big, big money. And that was their number one priority. Really? And then... Is that, did they, is that the band that did House of Jealous yeah, Lovers? Yeah. What a tune. What a tune. Brilliant tune. Absolute tune. Ah, I remember it. House yeah. oh, It's amazing. Absolute but they, they didn't really have anything to back it up with. No. I was like, that tune was amazing. Incredible though. tune. Oh, anyway, so uh, yeah. we digress. And so, so that was the big deal at the time. And um, and then you imagine, I've come in, I've, uh, I've sacked the MD... <laughs> I've gone in I've gone in I've done you know I've gone in and told the enemy that I'm a genius and all this kind of stuff and like people are like who is this guy yeah and there was sort of this culture started to happen in the label a little bit which was like just do it his way because he's going to mess it up and it's better that it's on him than on of, us of course right so they kind of let me do it my own way and that was great. And that happened until we got into doing the second album where it was like, now, then we've had some success. We sold a few million records. And then they started getting a bit like, like trying to stick the like, you know, and I, and I started coming up with ideas that were similar to, oh, similar, but I don't know. They were like ideas like, like, like I'm doing, I'm dry. I'm the creative guy driving it. And people, and people just laugh. And I go, no, no, but the video should be that. And they just laugh. And I go, but why, why are you laughing? Yeah. Like, and it wasn't like now, I couldn't just like do it myself on like a video editing program and just go, well, this is it. Deal with it. Only people that had video editing suites and that kind of stuff. It was, it was a really closed off thing, you know? So I would have needed universal to phone up and, you know, pay the money and that kind of stuff to get any idea done. So you needed them to be on board. Do you remember where you were when you wrote uh, America? What was the process of writing that song? Uh, we were on tour either with Muse or with Jimmy Eat World in oh, the States. Fucking love Jimmy yeah, Eat World. Yeah, and um, we were on tour, and we just, you know, it was hard because we were, was that that. Sorry to be. Yeah. Was that their Bleed America uh, album? I don't know. Oh, actually, sorry, I right. don't know. But um, salt, sweat, sugar on the asphalt. Watch you. Um, we never knew the words. We just, that was our competition to make up different words to that. Uh, throughout the tour anyway um so you were not on tour like really it's kind of hard because like you know we, we're sort of being anointed as like you know sort of uh you know uh indie uh, you know these these brash like up and coming superstars in england and, well, and like, i mean let's be real like once that record popped razor light were the the vanguard of British indie music. It yeah. was like you were om- omnipresent. Like everybody knew you. Like you yeah. did the live, live eight thing. Live eight, yeah, yeah, all you that. Were, yeah. You were in a lot. You were on the front of the enemy. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you were. You, you know. You you made. But then know, polarizing statements, and yeah. you know, and it's like so. I understand why you had such. So with that. Anyway. So, so anyway, so you're in England. You can't move for 
for for people recognizing you and people loving your music yeah, yeah, yeah. on the, especially on that first album i used to just get people coming up to me just saying they love my music which was great yeah absolutely nice right? um after america it was more like people coming up at, at, you know you still got people saying they love your music but a lot of people coming up and being like you're famous can i have a picture right you know and you're like yeah you you probably don't ever buy a cd yeah do you know what i mean like you know what i mean so i'm talking in old old language here but like do you know what i mean you're not a music you probably haven't never bought a ticket to a gig yeah why are you coming up to me you know what i mean like, I'm, I'm happy and i always will i mean i used to work in the players tunnel at chelsea and one thing i learned from Gianfranco zola was sign every autograph always and yeah never ever ever say no yeah 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 uh the only one i ever turned down was when when i played a cricket match at lords and uh the um i I was bowling and it was a plum LBW, which the umpire didn't give out. And at the end of the over, he asked me for an autograph on, on a race light CD that he had in his white coat. Ah! I said, you're joking, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so we're in America and, and like, you know, we're playing tiny rooms. That's itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're playing tiny rooms and that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, we're walking out in the street and getting heckled by jocks and, you know, your pants a little tight there, buddy. You know, that kind of stuff. And all this is... Giving you kind of motivation to write America, is well, it? Well, we're just feeling alienated, you know, and also I was extremely alienated by so you know the political situation. It was the Bush administration at that point in time, Absol which yeah. you know, and, and it was post 9 11. Yeah, the cops out there and stuff, no, it's the cops, the bouncers, everybody, especially middle America, they'd kill you, they'd beat you up for nothing. Carl got beaten up for standing over in the wrong part, he was his foot was over a line in one of the venues that we were headlining. You know, it's just playing a show, but there's a line that you're not allowed to stand over, and he was standing there, and the bouncer beats him up. You know, it was, so it was it was genuinely annoying. So anyway, so we're out there, and I'm sitting with Andy, and uh, we hear some Billy Joel track on the radio, and he's like drumming away because he loves Billy Joel, and I'm like, uh, I'm like, why don't we write a song with a beat like this? And he goes, uh, I'm like, if this is what you like, let's write a song with a beat like this. He's like, okay. So we go up to the room and I, and I filmed it. Um, I had a Sony Vio laptop. Old school. Yeah, I, like I actually it. filmed it, but the, the, the laptop got smashed to smithereen. So this doesn't exist anymore, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. And we just kind of jammed it out. But it was didn't really have lyrics and it was a bit more of a kind of reggae, you know, sort of white reggae vibe. Okay. Kind of like that. And... um had you did you like uh, put the the picking part together because well no we had it like that we demoed it without the delay that you used none of it it was all at this tempo it just started like the whole thing okay and uh, and then went double time at the end she's somewhere she's somewhere must be somewhere and I kind of thought it was too pop for Razorlight so so I had a we had a publishing deal with Sony so I was like all right shop this around. Wow. It's a hit song. Shop it around. Now, Richard from the label, he says that he as once he heard that I'd done that, he went over to Sony and like dangled them out the window and said, if you shop this around to anybody, I'm going to kill you. Right. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. And uh, and then we went into rehearsals in West London in Notting Hill and the, the Saga Centre. We had this amazing rehearsal studio. And I looked at I was well, I was living there. So I was there before the lads. Right. And um, Bjorn had a pedal. And it was called a memory man. Oh yeah, memory man. Everyone loves the memory man, the yeah. greatest pedal in the world, right? I, yeah, which I, is for anyone who doesn't play guitar, yeah. is a delay pedal, yeah. right? But I didn't know what that was because I'd never used a pedal. I just had distorted and clean. 
Of course. Right? Up keeping it keeping it simple. Absolutely simple. And um so I was like, okay, I'm gonna just plug into this pedal for a laugh. And I did. And then I and the first riff, one of the first riffs I'd ever written, like it was like a song I've recorded on my four track, like I should dig it out because I've still got that. Um like when I was 13, sort of had this kind of riff, right? Yeah. And I was like, why don't I try playing that? And I played that with the de delay and it was quite tasty. And I was like, what if I made that the same chords as that, uh, you know, that America song? I think we called it America by then, you know, that I've written with Andy, that yeah, pop yeah, one. Yeah. And I did. And I was like, oh, so I put the capo on seven and did it. And I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, and the lads turned up just at the right moment because I'd literally had that guitar in my hands, and I was like, "What? You know that song? Why don't we do it like this?" And uh, they were like, "Yeah, sure." And then Carl had this like nervous twitch every time he pick his bass up. He'd just go, just like that was his nervous twitch. Okay. And I said to him, "Carl, that's what you should play in the verse." He was like, what? "You're joking." I said, like, "To play that in the verse," and he was like. Yeah, all right. And that was sort of that ramping up thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Andy just, and great drummer Andy, because he just listened. And he was like, well, I'm not going to play in the verses. And you and me, Carl, were just coming on. Doom, doom, doom. You know? And uh, and that was that. And it, and, and it was like, I was quite inspired. Like, I was, I, I just heard the first Arcade Fire album. It hadn't come out yet. Oh, right. Okay. And I had that in my mind somewhere. But it ended up sounding like something between halfway between that album and Cindy Lauper, so uh, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. but you know, it was like it was my attempt to write a political song, and it sort of it turned into a pop monster. Yeah. But a seductive pop mo pop monster. Do you still enjoy playing it? Do you still like? What's your? Is it a moment in use? Because when we for people that don't know, my band Aflex Palace just supported Razor Light on tour, and when I was watching. Like it, the, it was the crescendo of the set. So yeah. everybody in the room definitely is there to hear that song. And a lot of artists get a little bit kind of fatigued with their song, their bigger songs. How do you feel about it now? I, I mean, it freaks me out, to be honest, you know, and I love it. But I'm you're just seeing people who know the song who weren't alive when it was written. Yeah. And they're like pogoing. Yeah. You can't pogo to that. It's like Cindy Lauper beat, you know what I mean? But there they are, you know? And I'm like, okay, fine. And uh, it's I, amazing. And I hear people singing it back. And the thing is, that, I, like, I'm not that song, right? I co-wrote that song with Andy. Yeah. Right? It's 50-50, right? Yeah. Despite whatever ever anyone might have said in the press, we never had an issue on that, ever. That was, right. You know, is what it was. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I wrote the vocal melody, the lyrics and that guitar riff at the beginning and I arranged it and he wrote the chords and that sounds like a co-write to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, he might have done some of the vocal melody. It's just a co-write, you know. Well, that's right. And, and uh, so that song, like this, like a song like Golden Touch or something like that, it's like, yeah, that's that feels like me. Okay. You know. And uh, that song just feels like it was something that was just bigger, bigger than me and Andy. Just kind of came out of the ether. Just, yeah, but they all do. But that one came out, and it was his own thing. But when it, when it, after I'd written it, I personally couldn't stop singing it for about two weeks. I was just singing it the whole time. I was yeah. like, I love this. Well, this is great. 
you it, know it felt it feels like it taps into people's nostalgia i think it yeah. it's, it soundtracked people's but then but what i was gonna say because it's not the coolest song ever right and it, you know, it, it, well it depends who's listening to it well, really. yeah i know but for where we were at that point in time we yeah. went and played at the nme awards and i remember like um there's jarvis sitting there giving me a stone face you know and like a Sheffield stone face, as you ah. probably know. I mean, like, you don't get no stonier than that. And no. I'm like, mate, I thought we were, mate, like, what? And it was this, like, you know, it was sort of a moment of, like, like, it, like, it was interpreted like I was betraying that whole scene, you know? Because you were, no. Yeah, I think so. And, and but... No, but you, they may have thought that. You yeah. may have felt that, but that wasn't what you were doing. Well, I like, thought, no, but you know what? Thing. I thought, you know what I thought would be, but the other thing is, because at the time it was considered, possibly considered overly pop, but you put that next to like, what like, you know, credible bands are doing right now. And it's nowhere near, like, you know no, what I mean? No, so no. so the, the goalposts have moved. Anyway, um so yeah so uh did you write it on acoustic or was there a guitar that you always used to write or was it like just something that you picked up just you picked know? up yeah yeah whatever yeah because you've I, I, you know i was having a bit of a nosy parker through some of your earlier live videos and you're still using that same gibson is it um the l6 s yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, is it the same one or it's the you... same one yeah so it's got that signature sound yeah we have to change the pickups every three or four years right because they just I think it's the sweat or something. They just they just disintegrate, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, it's aging better than me. Ah, I don't think so. <laughs> no, look, I keep looking look at I keep looking at it. And you see just more lacquer coming off it. And I remember like the first five years, that was the coolest thing in the world. You're like, and yeah. now you're like, slow down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That 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 was um, you know the the the, the moment of the show where you could see people, it was their arms out moment, even if they yeah. didn't know the entire Razor Light back catalogue yeah. and they'd come along to see it. Yeah. That was their arms out moment where they'd, they'd grab a mate and raise their pint and it was nice yeah. to see. Absolutely. You know, and it's, there was a unity within the entire room where people just kind of dissipate into the, into the nighttime, just feeling warm. And yeah. positive, and, yeah, and yeah. that's a really nice thing to be able to do for people. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, and um, but that was, and also that was kind of what I was like aiming at with that second album. And I thought this was look, I'm quite a rebellious person by nature, right? I never like to do what's expected of me. And after having had a hit, you know, indie rock album with Up All Night, what does everyone else do? They come back, they wear a leather jacket, they make a slightly darker version of the first one. Yeah, you know, maybe with a bit of dance music influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like. You know? <laughs> I'm like, well, what if we go? What if we go? I, I sort of treating it like, you know, like sort of rubber soul level of pop. Yeah. You know, what if we go a little bit right? Yeah. No one's expecting that. Absolutely. So I just thought, and and I thought that was kind of genius. I thought it was like really cool. You know, I'm not doing what's expected. The only thing is, like, I didn't expect it to be such a pop success. Well, I was kind of thinking it was going to be like a sort of like almost like a sort of um, self-aware kind of like postmodern uh, like exercise in pop. Did you find? But it wasn't the reaction to that album and the the the, the, um, the success. Uh, did you find that? It, uh, 
the pressure of being so well known a bit much and they came they seemed to come a point where instead of the enemy kind of like absolutely um not glorifying but you know supporting what you were doing turning into a, like making snide remarks and yeah, yeah, areas. yeah like how did how did you process that into you know i mean obviously it's a very broad stroke question but but you know like honestly i my mind was on other stuff at which at which what like after that second album came out yeah because that second album came out i remember it so well i remember getting on the plane to japan i think it was like one of our first shows afterwards and then i know we're going to the states and we're going here we're going to australia we're going all these places i'm like i've made it yeah absolutely this is absolutely. great absolutely i've got it i'm not i'm that that like you know snotty uh motor mouth uh indie kid whatever it's gone okay i'm gonna hold the door open for everyone and be nice to people yeah 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 done you know yeah. what I mean? I'm just gonna make some the best music I can make. So that was my that was my thing. You know, I'm like, what, what have I got to complain about? And between album two and album three, no. But the problem was was the band the band was the the politics within the band were were just that was what was taking up my time. Right. In it's, what in re, how in what regard? I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, if you, if you ask my girlfriend at the time because I had the same girlfriend all the way through that. Um, that period from releasing the album till uh, pretty much we toured it for about a year and a half. It was just me going, what, why is Andy so unhappy? Yeah. You know, and what can I do? Yeah. How can I help him? What can I do? Like, seriously, why, why, why hasn't he called me back? Like what, uh, every time and her just saying, I don't know. And that was, that was, you know, that was basically my thing, you know, and I'm just like, I just don't get it. Yeah, I, I think there was like I remember there, there was a you know there was a real um, what would be the word um, people would anticipate you to be quite tempestuous. There was this there was a reputation even to the point of where when I was saying oh yeah we're going on tour with Razorlight be like yeah and I'd be like so when we first met I you know I was completely aware that that, well I was anticipating some sort of blowback for nothing I was just like well you do your thing and you know if we hang out and stuff but spending time with you playing squash with you it's the complete antithesis to that you know you're so I I don't really know how people put you in that box I mean I've never seen you go off or you've never seen me go off you know but but like I don't know, like, you know. I don't, think I've got, I don't think I've gone off since about 2005, you know what I mean? But, like, I mean, I don't know. It's it, it's like, I, I just don't know. All that I know with, with that side of the world, which is kind of like the press world and everything like that, is it's always a vacuum. And there's always, a, there's always, a story is always needed. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's like, it's like Bono and his hat. Do you remember that one? I oh, it's like, he'd forgotten his hat for the start of his, their American tour. So he flew his hat first class, <laughs> British Airways, to be at the start of the tour because it's his favourite hat. Right. And that's the story that came out. Now, I, I was close with you two and the press and all that. And I said, to, I said, is this true? No, not even like, not even a bit of it. But the thing is, that's such a great story. It is a great story. But it needs to exist. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I was doing stuff back in the day that, and, and by the way, yeah, listen, I, w- I was from the fucking Roy Keane school, Right. Right up to right up all of album one, right? I was just like, let's fucking do this and let's not fuck around. 
Yeah. I don't give a shit about anyone's feelings. Yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah. I don't give a fuck. Right? I'm just like, let's go. You know, and it's like people sending around congratulatory emails after we've done a show, like, oh man, well done. We pulled it off. We played Glastonbury. And I just send a group email going, It's our job. Shut up. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, what are you on about? Let's just fucking get out there and just fucking do it. Yeah. You know? So it's like Every time I watch an interview with Roy Keane about his Man United days, I'm like, yeah, that was that was me back then, right? And then, so, so yeah, obviously I pissed people off. Yeah. Right? Do you think that fed into your the, the, the politics within the band? Do you, yeah, uh, totally. But, right. Yeah. But, uh... Because that, that's why I was saying that tempestuous element, when you were at your peak, you said earlier that, you're like, what can I do to make Andy feel like he wants to be a part of this? And No, just happy. Just well, just happy. Just right. happy. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. And just I'm just there. wondering if yeah. there were there were interactions where that would have kind of that you would think, oh, that moment there might have put him off. But I don't know. If yeah, of course there would have been. But right. it was, the thing is with Andy, it was you never know. It would have been. I remember he, like he was like he was absolutely hammered on a plane. He starts calling me a cunt, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is good. At least it's coming out now. Right. When he's sober, he's like, sorry, sorry, stoic. Yeah. yeah. Right? Not stoic, just like um, uh, Hugh Grant, full weddings and funeral, you know, like, yeah, yeah. You know. And, uh, and I'm like, but what's this all about? And he's like, we did an interview last year. And I said, I like Michael Jackson. And you told me just shut up. That's it. On air. Yeah. And I was like, did I? Okay. <laughs> that was my point. Was, that's it. <laughs> anything, like, anything else? Anything I can do to make it up to you? You know, like, you know, uh, where do we go from here? That's crazy. But like, that was, well, I don't know, perhaps there was more to it, but that was the resentment and, you know, and it'd be building up inside him. And I'm like, what about all the amazing times we've shared? Didn't they put me some credit in the, in the trust zone? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm sorry, if I did do that, I'm sorry. I probably was, I probably fancied the interviewer or something. You know what I mean? I was trying to be cool or, yeah. you know, like, anyway. Were you living in between album two and album three? Where were you living then? In, was it? Were you ever based in America or were you very briefly? Right, very briefly. Um, uh, I just didn't, never really liked it. I spent a few. I tried. I, I spent a month out there. I was like sort of in LA and and uh, New York. And how did you find like the the celebrity mingling of that time? Great. You enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. I met who, loads, of, loads of great people. Who were the people where you like met that were that are memorable? Would you say? Well, where you like that was and without you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, I was in London actually, but I remember I sat down at this table. I'd just been having a real fight with uh, with Courtney Love, right? Fucking and up. I sat down at this table. Oh, well, I sat down at this table, and I hear this voice to my left, and he goes, "Mr. Burrell." A man after my own heart, or so I hear. And I'm like, excuse the American accent. And I'm like, I turn around and it's Quentin Tarantino. Fucking and I'm like, hell. Oh, hi, Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I'm a man after your own heart. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm like, where's he get that from? And um, so we get talking and stuff like that. Then Courtney came over and she was, I don't know, I was having a go at her. And we were, we were trying to. In the, in the press or like in person? No, in person. Wow. I much prefer it in person. Yeah, you see. Well, because we were trying to define what was rock and roll. Where was this? I know, this was at the, I think, I think it was at the V&A Museum in, uh, in London, I think. Okay. And I was of the opinion that, you know, getting plastic surgery is not rock and roll. 
I agree. Right. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and I was just a little bit like, who are you to say what's rock and roll and what isn't? You said that to her. Yeah, it was something, you know. Fucking brilliant. A little less, brilliant. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps a little less politely put. And, um, you know, I like Courtney. I've got nothing, I got nothing against her. No, but you know it's I mean? hilarious. It was just a little bit like she was just like, you know, she was playing like the, I know what's what. And she does to an extent. Within know. reason. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So, um, and so, yeah. And, and I remember, so, yeah. So uh, Tarantino's there. And I'm like, this is like, I, what a dream. You know, and he said, we're talking about boxing. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, movies. And all that, you know, Kurosawa. You know, it's like, yeah. You know. That's remarkable. And why, why, why didn't I take his phone number? I don't know. I was an idiot. I was always always felt like there was just like whatever else was going on. There was this sort of level of insecurity where I was like, I'm not going to bother people. You know, I'll call him when I make a really good record. Did you ever have an imposter syndrome? Do you think? Yeah, totally. Right. I'll be like, I can't call Tarantino now because I've only made those two records. When I make a third one that's really amazing, then I'll give him a call. Oh shit! So it was always that kind of stuff. You know, Gianluca Vialli. I mean, like, who was my hero? Yeah. When I was a teenager, and I met him, and it was the same kind of vibe. And then tragically, he died of cancer last year. I saw that. And it was my first thought was just like, I should have. Why didn't I call him back? Yeah, absolutely. It's always that thing of like, oh, I don't want to bother. You know, I'm not. You do feel like you're bothering people sometimes yeah, totally. when you reach out and stuff. Yeah. But I don't. I I also feel like a lot of musicians who are fortunate to be in the position to be full time doing music. It's quite it can be quite a lonely existence because everybody else is at work or. Um, oh well, are like your mates and stuff? And yeah, like, yeah, totally, they're at work. Yeah. And if you've not got kids or you've not got a family, you can feel like you're twiddling oh, you your thumbs. You have to thumbs. figure it out, though. You, yeah, well, yeah. you do. Yeah. But I mean, you look at like remember it, the, fir the first five times I came back off tour, yeah. and you're like, "What? Yeah, what?" And you phone up your mates. They're like, "Yeah, I'm at work." Yeah, and you're like, "What?" Yeah. Well, I've seen interviews with Lemmy. Yeah, where he was living in LA. Everyone sees him as this hellraiser, recalcitrant person. He's in a bit of an idol. Yeah. But from what I could read in between the lines, like Henry um, Henry Rollins from Black Flag was saying, oh, he was always asking me to go over. I didn't want to go because, you know, I didn't have time. And it just sounded didn't have like, time for the hangover. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. But, yeah, but I was just like, but it just sounded like Lemmy was really like qu quite lonely yeah. living in his flat, collecting like war memorabilia and going to yeah, the, yeah. and just drinking and drinking and, dr and then going on tour. But yeah, I think that. Well, he loved being on tour, didn't he? Well, of course, but well, that was yeah. his identity and his existence. But yeah. like for you, when you're not doing music, Ace you play spades. How'd you write that? Honestly, I mean, honestly, what a tune! Let's get real. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. I was trying to find some of the Motorhead tunes the other day that could be put in this uh, the same sphere, and none none of their other tunes no. come remotely no. close to that. It's the masterpiece. It's perfect. It is perfect. Absolutely perfect. But that's the thing with yourself. You have other interests, but, that's, but and you it fills your time and. But well, you have to I figure that out. Yeah, you have to learn that. Squash. The hard way. Well, yeah. I mean, we play squash. Well, exactly right, but yeah, sport. I mean, the thing is, I got I got into boxing just after we did the second album. Right for fitness or for self defense or both. because you liked it. Both. Mm. Both to be honest, and um, I just loved it. But I've always loved sport, uh, and so to me, it was like. A natural sports the best drug yeah you know so that kind of like so i would still party after that but it would be a little bit more judicious you know because it was that feeling of like 
or if I if I keep I mean I quit smoking when I was 25 yeah you know and up till then I was smoking like 68 year day I mean it was just like you know okay I've got a question for you top three boxers of all time oh I'm sorry let me rephrase the question your favourite three boxers of all time well um Oh, I, I mean, so much choice. I mean, okay, I'm gonna go with uh, with a home pick first of all with yep. with Ricky Hatton. Oh, yeah. Right? Only because I played football with him once, and I tried to shoulder barge him. Oh god, <laughs> big mistake. He's a right unit. He's small though. Oh my god. But his he's... center his his center of gravity is the core of the earth. Right. <laughs> he's the strongest man I've ever met. Wow. Like just like because like, I met David Hay once, and I was like. Shook his head. I was like, no, not the same feeling, but like, and it was like, okay, Ricky. And I just, the heart he took, well, first of all, his left hook body shot was just beautiful. Yeah. But the heart that he brought to that, that Mayweather fight over yeah. in Las Vegas, where, I mean, with the best one in the world, he knew he had no chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But he just showed so much heart, you know, in that fight. And, um, well, he, I think he just showed heart throughout his entire career. Well, absolutely, he, what an engine! Yeah, and yeah. just like would run through walls in fights. You know, he was, he yeah. was a. That's I think that's why people had such a absolutely love for him. Yeah, and he, yeah, I'll just yeah, I'll never forget that shoulder barge. <laughs> just <laughs> I don't think he even knew. So He'll be like Johnny Burrell shoulder barge. I never even noticed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gust of wind. Um, so that's one. Who's two? I mean, I don't know. Like, I'd just, I'd go like Hearns, Hagler, Duran, Sugar Ray. You know that whole that period, the four of them. Yeah. You know that was late seventies, early eighties, middleweight. You know, just just unbeatable. Yeah. And I always thought like I loved um, I loved Duran's nickname. Hands of Stone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's <laughs> right. it. Everyone else is like the fabulous. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Sugar, you know, this kind of stuff. And he's just Hands of Stone. But it's, 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 so, like, it's almost scary. It's like, you know, scary. Yeah. There's a sad, there's a Latin sadness to that. It's like Garcia Marquez or something, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I can group all those four in as. Uh, it's, it's your remaining choices. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's a cop out. But there you go. No, I, uh, nice. I mean, that you know, is... like you know, watching that early Tyson stuff is always uh, electrifying. Uh, um, he's he's a terrifying geezer. Yeah, I me- I, I remember, but I, I remember following fights when I was a kid by 20 years old on the radio. Wow. Right? Because I, I had this terrible period where I, I would put all the money I had in the world yeah. on whoever, on, on like the Lennox Lewis fight. And I lost three times in a row. Right. Absolutely. Absolute <laughs> nightmare. I'd bet against him when he'd win. I'd bet well, for well, him when he'd lose. So, so when he lost to McCall, you bet that he would win. That was a that, look, that was a lucky punch. That, that wiped me out. But I was one. sitting there in bed listening, right on the radio, and I'm throwing all the punches because yeah. you know they're describing it, and it actually was a great way to follow a fight because you're just sort of shadow throwing all those all those shots yourself, and you're like, wow, yeah, you're really getting like a well at that at that point feel for it. It was my I come from quite a working class background, and we never had Sky, and we we didn't have a TV with a remote for years, and then. My mum and dad separated and my dad, because I played squash to quite a high standard as a junior, he said, I'll pay for for, for Sky because right. Eurosport has squash on right, occasion yeah, yeah. and you can watch it and yeah. pick up notes. Nice. And that's the only reason. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I'll watch it. Like I'll be, I'll be a student of yeah. Eurosport. 
And I was just like, at that point, Sky Sports yeah. were, 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 were pushing like Chris Eubank, Prince Nassim Hamid, yeah. um, um, Nigel Benn, yeah. and all those kind of boxers. And that's kind of when I started like just being seen. Prince to see Mohammed cartwheel over the wheels and yeah, it, you yeah. know just knocking. But people. that was a great time for boxing. Oh, I was in a metaphor. I, mean, I was going to give a shout out to Chris Eubank. In, in I that love Eubank. I love Eubank. He's such I, a geezer. Driving around in that fucking massive yeah, truck in Brighton. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I love that. It's it's it's, it's almost like that, you know the dandy thing. Oh. You know, it's almost like he's like the adamant of boxing. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, and I just think there is just that incredible thing to just stick your head above the parapet and just go, this is this is what it is. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah, but the thing is, he, he kind of, a lot of people didn't get him. A lot of so people So they were like, oh, he's a wanker. And I was yeah. just well, like, he, that's he is. He's, he's the work. definition. Like, you know, that's that's what it is. But who cares? Uh, but but he's, the the world is such a better place. And I say, I say that with respect. I say that, you know, to a meathead, he's a wanker. Yeah, absolutely. They right? don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. In that, if that's your vision, that's your lane, he's a wanker. Yeah. Obviously. Hard as nails that day. Incredible fighter. Couldn't believe Steve Collins beat him in those two fights because yeah. he was kind of. But, his, his, but that was after the, you know. Oh well, after um. Yeah. Um, what, uh, is it Gel- Gerald Mike, McClellan? Uh, no, no, McClellan. no, no, Michael. Um, Michael Watson. Yeah, Michael Watson. Yeah, when he got. And uh, but yeah, Chris Eubank. I just love him so much. Respect. Yeah. In fact, if you watch the second fight with Steve Collins. Yeah. It, it was over in Ireland. Yeah. Look at the vet compared to now, like boxing is like Wembley. F- yeah, fights of yeah. that magnitude, Wembley or huge arenas or whatever. They're fighting in like a, a an auction house for cattle, yeah, in in the I, west part of Ireland. Yeah. And it's just like this most ins like the cameras are in, it's been like max 3,000 people in the building, yeah, yeah. And compa- like I watched it not so long ago, I, I, I it was unbelievable how low key I, I, it all I was. Personally, I was going to sound like an old man, but I hate watching modern boxing. Oh, there's what? nowhere to look. There's a, there's a there's advertising on everything. There's screens all around all around the auditorium. So there's light on the ring, but then there's light in the auditorium as well. You're like, whoa! Just go back and watch that early 70s footage when color first came in, or late 60s. Yeah. And just watch it and just see a nice blue ring lit with you know with spotlights. Yeah, and see two incredible athletes. You know just fighting each other that's yeah. all i want you can give, give me a wide camera i don't care just lock that camera off yeah and i'll just watch the fight from there thank you very much yeah you know i don't need to be zooming in and out all the time and like i think that's as a purist though it's yeah. like if you look at the darts the way they've made that so oh, i haven't seen it for a long time but oh well it's it's, yeah. it's like theater it's yeah. like theater for for people that aren't really interested in sports they but i've still got there. snooker Oh, well, there you go. You know, though they have zoomed in closer on the table than they used to. Yeah. You That's very the, trad, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Very trad. You watch the old stuff. No, the old stuff, they were further out. You'd actually see, while one player was making a break, when, when it got to the semis in the final, while one player was making a break, you'd still have in shot the other guy sitting there. Yeah. It was like tension. Yeah. It was yeah. like just brilliant. You're like, you could watch, you could sit, Stephen Hendry's cannoning them in right and and you got like jimmy just sitting there like smoking fags and you know like yeah, 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 and yeah. you just see just like exactly what it felt get. like you were there yeah totally yeah yeah it's yeah i guess in many ways we were, were it's a luxury to, to have you know so many replays with, with yeah. certain sports but at the same time you lose that intimacy yeah you know when but it also feels so it's a luxury because you can watch anything you want Mm. Like nothing's not televised. I saw, I've I've seen every athletic Bill Bow preseason. 
I mean, how's that possible? Did you ever used to watch that um, um, uh, that Italian uh, football on, a, on Channel on, Four on with, a Sunday? With uh, Gary, um, what's his name? Oh no, what was his name? Yeah, I used to, I loved it. Yeah, and it was like God, yeah. that's yeah, and he'd it. always read the papers Re- yeah, under the, the coolest sword. man in the world. Yes. Yeah. And I, I remember watching that. And they say in, all the Italian names with like perfect Italian accent. Yeah. Just, yeah. That was, and, and the goals always seemed super like spectacular. Yeah. Uh, and, but it all, it felt like a snapshot of a different dimension. And it I'm felt. Addicted to, I'm addicted to that time period. Like anything from about 1991, I just love it. Yeah. I, see, I can see, I could see a photo of anything from that, from that me, time period. And I just go, I love that. Me too. Yeah. Like my favorite World Cup is World Cup 94. Uh, oh yeah! Just because of the players that were playing, it was in America when I still loved America. Not right. that I don't mind, yeah. but, but there I was like, it felt like the it was aspirational. Yeah, they hadn't like, in my yeah, opinion, yeah, yeah, yeah. shit the bed with all the fucking walls and the bad yeah. press and all that. And when, yeah. I, I've been to America a few times now, and it's great and everything, but it's not the America that I fell in love with. Yeah, sure. when I was a kid before I'd yeah. been. So they were playing in Philadelphia and like fucking Detroit, me- yeah, like yeah, Megadome yeah. and like to a hundred thousand people and it was boiling out. You had Brolin playing for yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. Sweden and you had like Alexi Lalas playing for yeah, the United yeah. States. Absolutely. And I was just, and th- I remember the, the stanchions at the back of the goal were like square, like on FIFA 94. And whenever a goal went in, it just looked remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I, I, that, that I don't know, period. I was talking to my mate who's like in his early twenties today and he was saying for him, the best period of football was like 2000 and, 2006 mm. but it's just goes to show it's a generational it thing it is a generational it? thing he was like no it was great then because there was all the scandal but there wasn't the social media well it's so, a fair point you know so and I was like yeah I think Gaza dentist chair 96 amazing trumps it absolutely trumps it right we're running out of time yeah so we're gonna have to wrap it up there but Johnny Borrell it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you we'll have, when we've got more time we'll have to do it again because yeah, yeah, I, I love talking to you you're a good guy nice one thank you